Welcome to the Idea Climbing Podcast. Today, I'm here with Matthew Confer, who is the VP of Strategy and Ability, an experiential learning company based in Austin, Texas, that does simulation-based learning with organizations and universities in more than 30 countries around the world. Matt speaks frequently on the topic of decision-making and leadership development. His TEDx talk entitled, Before You Decide, has been viewed more than 75,000 times. He also hosts the Learn to Lead podcast, where he talks with authors, academics, and business leaders about the leadership journey. In this episode, we discuss the big mistakes people often make in virtual meetings and how to avoid them, out-of-the-box ways to keep your participants delightfully engaged during presentations and meetings, how to create successful virtual mentoring experiences, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Matt, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. No, it's great to be here. And I'd love to jump right in. On our last conversation, one thing we brought up was distracted learners and, you know, Zoom fatigue and people are now multitasking on camera. It's like some of the, some of the etiquette went right out the window and they got too comfortable on camera. But how do you as a leader make your content more interactive and engaging? Yeah, I, I think you you hit it right out of the park to start. You've got us working in Zoom. You've got us hanging with friends in Zoom. We're, my brother got married on Zoom earlier this year. So everybody is a little bit worried about the impact and that proverbial uh, Zoom fatigue. So you know, we're an organization that does that does training with companies. So a couple of the things that we do that that maybe could be helpful for others is we actually schedule in way more breaks than we would ever schedule in on an in-classroom or an off-site type of event in person. But what we try to do is we try to make the breaks a little bit shorter in duration. You know, you're at home, you're most likely able to in five to 10 minutes, get what you need, take care of what you need, and then feel like you can re-engage again. And what we're hearing from people is they would prefer more of those opportunities, even if they're slightly shorter in duration. And we try to be pretty clear with people up front that we're going to give you a lot of breaks. People sometimes go into a longer Zoom or longer virtual event, and they're just reticent because they're worried that they're just going to be locked on camera all day. So make them feel really comfortable about in that. Another thing that we do that might help is even though you're not in person and you can't take a coffee break together, you still schedule maybe coffee breaks. And even though you're making the coffee at home, throw everybody into a Zoom breakout room so that you can meet somebody new. You know, if you're trying to build networking among a group, you want to kind of embrace the things that people like about the in-person experience and try to bring that to the virtual space. And I think that helps to fight the fatigue a little bit. So with the content itself, how do you define engaging content and what does it look like? Yeah, as an organization, we talk a lot about how there's passive learning and then there's active learning. And there was this huge study that we reference frequently. It was a survey on student engagement and it was done by the University of Minnesota. And what they found was learning that drives achievement and development shares two characteristics. And the two characteristics are that it's active and it's collaborative. So I think whatever you do, no matter what you're trying to get across, you need to involve people in the process. It needs to be active or it's super easy to get distracted and it needs to be collaborative. 
I think we all work and live in much more collaborative environments. And as a result, anything that you're doing that's fully virtual, if you want to keep people engaged, make sure they have teammates depending on them. Make sure they have partners to bounce ideas off of. It's a lot easier to get disengaged when it's just you and the screen. So make sure it's active and make sure it's collaborative. What are other ways that you can make it collaborative besides teammates? Yeah, one thing that we try to do is, you know, Zoom has these whiteboard features or these chat features or these polling features. If you want to make things engaging, you have to keep people guessing. You want to keep people on their toes. You want to make it so they don't know that the next 30 minutes is just going to be content coming at them. You want them to be prepared for the fact that in five minutes, everybody might get asked to throw something in the chat. You want people to be prepared for the fact that a poll might be popping up asking them to answer a question. You need them to be prepared that they might be going into a breakout room to talk about a hobby they picked up during quarantine. You wanna keep people guessing, keep people on their toes. You are trying to do whatever you can to protect against the proverbial cat video that's gonna pop up on YouTube and people are gonna be prompted to jump over to their cell phone, pop over to their text message, maybe respond to a work or a personal email. You wanna keep them engaged just like you would try to keep them engaged if you were standing in front of them. And how often should you do that? Cause I, you could get over pulled if you will, but I mean, is there a certain time frame or just watching how they look on the camera? Yeah, we call it, we want consistent, constant, and differentiated interaction. So can I give you an exact number? Every five minutes, you should be prompting somebody with something. I think to your point, that might be a little bit aggressive, but if it's differentiated and if it's constant, meaning that in an hour of delivering content, you're asking for four to seven different interactions, you're moving people around, you're keeping people on their toes. I think that's where you can get over the hurdle because we've all been in virtual sessions that just leave a lot to be desired it's actually a low bar that you have to clear. If you kick it off with an exciting icebreaker, you share interesting statistics, you get people on camera, get their mics on, get them sharing something. I think you, you benefit from the fact that a lot of virtual stuff leaves a lot to be desired. So if you clear that bar, you clear it early and you clear it often, I think people will give you the benefit of the doubt. And, and how can leaders create an engagement with teams? Because I know we talked about lead, leaders engage with multiple teams. I mean, what kind of responsibilities do they have to the team? As an organization, honestly, we've struggled with and, and I've struggled with as a manager, how often should we be meeting when we were a mostly in the office type of culture? We did maybe one all hands meeting a, a week, one dedicated you know, quarterly review that was a, a real substantial meeting. And for the rest of the time, we relied on ad hoc interaction to bring those uh, big breakthroughs together and bring that 
reporting that people were aware of on a weekly cadence. Now that we're fully remote, we're doing more daily stand-up meetings with smaller teams, trying to keep everybody abreast of what's going on in other departments with their colleagues, and almost, for lack of a better way to describe it, kind of forcing the interaction in the virtual space. So I myself am now meeting with my team much more on a regular cadence for shorter interactions, but there's some regularity to it, and it's happening on a reoccurring basis, and we've fallen into a nice flow in that regard. Regard. So it's it's basically on an as needed basis. It doesn't sound like there's a science to how often you should meet. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, I'll be totally lay my cards on the table. We have a difficult time figuring out how often should we be meeting because you don't want to meet so rigidly that you turn off the impetus to meet on an ad hoc basis. You don't want to say, oh, we have seven scheduled meetings in this next week and I really need an answer right now, but I'm just going to wait for the morning meeting. You, you do want some agility to remain in the organization and you definitely want some agility as a leader to be able to dissect and then actually go after the problems as they come up and not just hang back and wait for that regularly scheduled meeting. So one of the problems would be there's an issue to be, there's an issue that needs to be talked about. It would be the right way to say let's not wait until Friday and have people expect that that could happen. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I'll mention is you have to be transparent as a leader and lay out that you don't know exactly what the right solution is. So if you are soliciting feedback up front and along the way, you might find that your team of six absolutely hates regularly stand up meetings, but they absolutely love the fact that for three hours a week, you're sitting in a Zoom room, honestly doing nothing, just getting your work done and people can pop in and out as needed and ask you questions. In some ways, creating what might exist in the office when you're sitting at desks next to them. Your team might absolutely love daily stand-up meetings for 15, 30 minutes in length. And that gives them a level of comfort that they know there's going to be an arena for them to surface ideas. I do think you have to throw things at people and see what resonates with them and see what ideas and suggestions they have. So it's almost like it sounds like open office hours would be one of them. Yeah, we've, we've played around with some things. We've had open Zoom rooms where two of our leaders will sit in there and, you know, their microphones on mute and their video off until somebody on the team pops in, asks a question, everybody goes on video. And then when the question's done, the conversation is over, people pop out. We've also tried to set up either weekly happy hours or random catch-up coffee meetings for people who maybe are on different teams to interact in a way in a virtual setting that they might have interacted in the kitchen at the office when we were all there in person. With the coffee meetings or the happy, no, the happy hours, I'll say, is there a structure to it? Because I know some, sometimes people say it's just open. You know, everyone shows up and raise your hand and you can talk about anything you want. I was recently on one where they had a facilitator give us an exercise of, you know, draw what the type of things that you're looking for. And I thought with the structure, it seemed a little bit more engaging than just hoping people would talk. I mean, what side of the fence are you on and what do you think about that? 
I think I lean more on the structure side. And the reason is structure can always turn into more free form. It's a little bit harder to pitch a meeting as free form brainstorm, or let's just get together and chat. And if things go off the rails early, meaning nobody's really engaging, and this seems like it's potentially a waste of people's time, it's hard to add structure later. The converse being, if you go in with structure, you know, you're playing a, a virtual trivia game together, or there are some, some great options online for, for stuff like that, or to your point, maybe a structured uh, brainstorming or, or drawing or something like that, you can always move to more free form. And if you move to free form, that's probably because the engagement was really high and people went down a tangent and then you're chatting and you're discussing. If you start with free form, it's really hard to then add structure if things aren't going your way. So in this Zoom facilitates networking. And one of the things you mentioned, and this might be something that people should think about when they're using Zoom and setting up meetings, is that good networkers move up in business faster. Why do you think that? I think one of the things that when I've been on the other side of the hiring table, which is something that as I've advanced in my career, you move up and you start to make decisions about who you want to join the team. Everybody, to a certain extent, has the basics checked. They wouldn't have gotten to where they are if they didn't have the basics checked. Went to a decent school, potentially have the credentials that they need to do, to do the job. The thing that tends to separate people is what is their story beyond that? And what did they do outside of maybe a traditional education and then career to get to where they are? And what sort of value do you think they would add to the team more broadly? A big component of that is who are they connected with? What groups did they involve themselves with? Maybe it's a nonprofit that they helped. Maybe it's a startup that they worked on while they were going back to school to get an advanced degree. And a lot of those intangible things that end up making the difference between a great candidate and a truly stellar candidate that we could not imagine not adding to the team depend on networking, growing your brand, meeting interesting people, and driving value beyond the standard educational and corporate jobs that maybe make you able to be considered but not able to stand out above the herd. So networking is definitely important for that. The, I like the intangible side. So many people, I think, miss that. They just look at check, you have the degree, check, you have the you know this many years of experience. But that's I don't think that's a standard interview question or even a networking question of how well networked are you. I couldn't agree more. And I also think one of the, the uh, most enjoyable things about my job is we get to work with very large organizations in their high potential programs, their new manager programs, and their executive development programs. And the thing we hear time and time again is what we're looking for our rising leaders to do is cross-functionally collaborate. We want leaders that think big picture across the organization and don't get stuck in their silo. If you're an incredibly brilliant legal mind and you're on our legal team, we want our senior leaders in the legal space to be ones who have relationships with the technology team, have relationships with HR, have relationships with sales, because we know as an organization, we're going to be better when those functions are working well together. And that necessitates networking above all else. So one of the things with networking in Zoom that you'd also mentioned is role playing as one of the strategies for engagement. What does that look like? 
Yeah, I am somebody who really benefited from mentorship relationships. And I think the vast majority of people who ascended to a certain level at their career got there due to hard work, but also due to having people above them to bounce ideas off of and get feedback from. A suggestion that I make frequently is sometimes mentorship is very surface level, meaning if you were my mentor, we would get together and you would ask what has going on in my world, what's the last two to three weeks been, what's the next two to three weeks looking like, what's on the horizon. Those are great conversations to have in a mentorship relationship. I like to push the envelope a little bit farther and even role play things with your mentor-mentee relationship. So pull something out of the business headlines or just world news and ask them how they would handle it. Learn from how your mentor thinks when presented with a difficult situation. So in one of our leadership programs, we try to pull either big events that have happened in the business world where maybe there was a little bit of a PR disaster. And we try to throw people into those situations and ask them how they would handle it. And then that allows people to kind of hear how people think and how people distill the right response. If you have a mentor that you really trust their opinion, throw some scenarios at them, act them out a little bit, see how they think, and then push them a little bit to explain why they did what they did. I think that level of experiential learning is why rising leaders can really ascend. You have to learn from the people above you about how they think and how they disseminate the information when presented with difficult situations. And how, how does that work in your company? I mean, do you, is it a regular activity that you do with the higher up leadership? Is it something you can engage with on your own to take the initiative? Yeah, we try to talk a lot about decision-making frameworks. It's something that I'm, I'm truly passionate about. And it's something that I try to speak about and write about frequently. So it's one thing that we always try to do is we talk about the concept of a, of a pre-mortem. So a lot of people in business are very familiar with post-mortems. You wait until a project is over and then you kind of dissect what happened, what went right, what went wrong, how did we get here? We try to talk a lot in the early stages about pre-mortem, which really is going after a problem and assuming it's going to fail and having to actually kind of role play out why it would fail. And I think it makes you a better leader and a better decision maker when you push yourself to consider that something that you think is a good option actually could end horribly and forcing yourself to think about how it might end horribly. So we're constantly trying to have those conversations. And then that helps you avoid the problem overall? I think it does two things. One, it helps you avoid the problem. If during those conversations you uncover what the problem would be, you can work to address it. Second, I think it's really powerful to play almost the devil's advocate of what you're considering. So try to poke holes in what you're considering. Even if you end up going down the path you were considering, you're a stronger leader and your decision is stronger if you consider what holes could be in your theory. I got to say many times when I watch people in one of our simulations or I talk to somebody in a consultative role, they can come out with six or seven reasons why what they're considering is going to be a smashing success. Usually it is more difficult for them to come up 
with any reason why it would fail. We're all somewhat wired to think if this is a decision we're considering, it's going to be successful. My biggest suggestion is press yourself to at least contemplate how it wouldn't be successful and it will make your ending decision that much more powerful. I don't think many people do that. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, they probably need to. So with in closing, as far as conversations go and having meaningful or creative conversations virtually, if there's one thing that stands out, whether well, it's something we talked about to reiterate or something we haven't talked about yet, what would that one thing be? If someone were to come to you and say, I need to have meaningful creative conversations and I'm doing it virtually, what do I need to do? The biggest thing that I struggled with early in my career, and I still struggle with it to this day, and I'm trying to get better at it, is you as a leader or as a colleague have to consider the fact that the people around you or the people that you're communicating with potentially are motivated by different things than you are. We've talked frequently in our people manager simulation about the virtual characters that you interact with, and they all have different motivators. And a big challenge of the game is understanding what motivates them to come to work in the morning. So to answer your question, if you want to improve the way you communicate virtually, you need to think about the person on the other end of the computer and what's motivating them given the challenge that you both are facing, given the project ahead. And how can you actually work to understand the lens that they're looking at and how it might differ than the lens you're looking at? I think it makes you a better manager, a better teammate, and overall, I think it just makes you more successful when you're interacting with somebody in the virtual space. Thank you so much for sharing some genius today. I appreciate it, Matt. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. And if someone wants to look you up, what's the best way to find out more about you and or your company? Yeah, the best way to find me is on social media at Matthew Confer. Um, additionally, we run a podcast as well. If your audience is interested, focus mainly on leadership development. It's called Learn to Lead. And I have the pleasure of hosting that. And I would love to connect with your audience. And thanks again for the opportunity. You're very welcome. Hope you have a good rest of the week. You as well. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I also hope that you'll subscribe to the Idea Climbing podcast and rate us on iTunes. Visit ideaclimbing.com to learn more about idea climbing and hear more episodes about mentoring, marketing, and big ideas.